Philippians 1 through 28. Thank you for my assistant there. The resurrection of Christ. Now I, would, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he has expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all 
in all. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this is an interesting idea. This is even a somewhat provoking theological idea. And we're going to talk about this in the middle of the sermon. But I want to submit to you that everything that happens to Jesus Christ, notice I say that happens, not who he is, but rather everything that happens to Jesus Christ, he did on your behalf as a forerunner. Paul says he's the first fruits of the dead. He's the firstborn of all creation. And so he is a forerunner for the things which happened to you and I. Now that may sound heretical, but I am not saying in any way that you become the son of God because that didn't happen to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ eternally is the son of God as we testified in the recitation of the creed. But what happens to Jesus is said to be applied to the believer, and that is Paul's logic in this passage. Christ says in Revelation either 2 or 3, he says, To him who overcomes, I will give him what? The right to sit down on the throne of my Father with me. And those who overcome are those who are saved. Whatever has been born of God overcomes the world. And so if you are born of God, you overcome the world. Jesus promises that those who overcome will sit on the throne. Paul says that this doctrine of a, of a future glory of reigning with Christ has already taken place in, in the spiritual. He says in Ephesians chapter 2 that Christ is seated in heavenly places and we are seated in heavenly places. It sounds funny, but Christians can be in two places at once. We are seated in heavenly places. That is true. The reason we are seated is because we are spiritually present, mediated by the Holy Spirit. We are spiritually present with Christ even now, seated in heavenly places. And so whatever happens to Jesus Christ, has, he has encountered that for you so that you would be able to enter into it through our union with him. That's a foundational doctrine of what it means to be united with Christ. And that, that radically shapes how you face trial, how you face discouragement, how you go through life, how you structure your family life, career, vocation. You must understand that by the Spirit, you are joined with Christ in an inseparable bond that will never be uh, taken away. And that's the logic that Paul uses in this chapter without understanding the union of, of the believer to Jesus Christ. You can't make sense of what Paul is talking about. So I just wanted to say that as a precursor before we examine the text in more detail. That logic is, nece is necessary for you to understand before you see why Paul is saying, if Christ hasn't been raised, then no one will be raised. And if, the, if Christ has been raised, then all will be raised. So there are five things I want to look at in today's passage, the historic foundation of the Christian faith. Paul says that he's going to remind them of the gospel, and then he does something that looks like the book of Numbers. I think it's interesting that we have very little emphasis in the current church in the way that we emphasize different passages of the book of Numbers, of genealogies. They're important because our faith is found, founded in a historical, uh, historical continuity. There is a continuity between the apostles and today, and that's the preaching of the gospel. I want to look at how grace works, although it's not explicitly part of the doctrine of the uh, resurrection alone. It's, grace is not in any way only applying to the resurrection, but Paul here gives a demonstration of how, the doc or how grace works. 
how, th- how he understands God to be working in him, and he shows that as an example of a Christian's resurrection. That is, he was dead in, in spirit and became alive. Paul hasn't been physically resurrected, but rather he's had his life transformed. I want to look at the implications of Christ's resurrection. That is what Paul uses, uh, Paul's logic that he uses here, how it explains to us the foundational nature of the doctrine of the resurrection, how it is the great Christian hope. And then finally, I want to look at the authority and submission, which Paul says is the final state of, of what we understand to be history or time, if you will. Uh, that is, when, when the end of the ages has come and Jesus returns, there is authority and submission. Authority and submission, contrary to what the spirit of the age says today, are good and right things. They are not things that are, should be done away with. They're not things that should be run from. They are things that are good and right in God's plan. And far from getting rid of authority and submission, as, as modern society would wish to do, we're actually headed there. That's the end goal. That's the purpose for which the creation exists. So with that in mind, let's get into today's text. Uh, The gospel, as Paul says here, is not a series of intellectual doctrines that you must mentally understand or believe in the heart alone. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel certainly includes those doctrines. Those doctrines refer to historical events, but when Paul says he's going to remind them of the gospel, he starts with some foundational things, that Christ died for your sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. Remember that from the reading? He says those things and then immediately continues on to list off a series of events that are taking place in time and space with real humans who were the apostles. And then after that, he continues to say, and now I've preached to you. And so, Christianity is not just a set of facts to believe. It certainly is a set of facts to understand, believe. You cannot become a Christian. You cannot appropriate the grace of Christ without receiving his word and therefore understanding the doctrines of of, of the Christian faith. But without understanding the historical context in which these things were done, we have a spiritualized gospel that is disconnected from physical, real world events. These are historic things. These happen to real people, people with natures like ours, as the scripture plainly says. And this was done, and we have been connected to them through the preaching of the gospel throughout these last 2,000 years. And Paul, when he says he's going to remind them of the gospel, says these things and then immediately goes on to connect it to James, Cephas, who is Peter, and, and himself. And so, of course, the gospel is the good news that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was resurrected. But it also includes, as we talked about last week in the Great Commission discussion, that it also includes Christ continued his work by commissioning a group of men to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every nation, to disciple them. And so this message of repentance and forgiveness, which the prophets over and over again said would come forth from Zion, we're about to celebrate Pentecost in two weeks, and in Acts 2, Peter says that the law will go forth from Zion, and he, he quotes uh, a prophet, say, uh, I think it's one of the Psalms actually, he quotes a Psalm and says that this was always the intended goal, that God would send forth his word from Zion, Jerusalem, and that it would go, as he says in Acts 1.8, 
he would they would preach in Jerusalem and Samaria, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth, expanding outward from Jerusalem. And so this is the gospel. The gospel is not just that Christ died and that Christ was buried and that Christ resurrected. It's also that he triumphs through his disciples over the Roman culture, the Jewish opposition, and the the Western, uh, you know, at that time, only Greek way of thinking, the philosophies and the vain glories that they had established. Christianity triumphs, and that is the gospel just as much as the resurrection. Now, of course, we're not saying that the work of the apostles in any way contributed to the meritorious work of Jesus Christ, but the gospel is not just about the atonement and the resurrection. It also is that God is continuing to move through his apostles by the Holy Spirit. That's what the book of Acts is. It's the acts of the apostles. It's really the acts of Jesus Christ working in the apostles by his spirit. That's a little long for a title, so we just call it the book of Acts. But that is what the book of Acts is about. And so here we see the gospel being connected into a historical foundation. These are verifiable events. We know that these men are testified in historians in in other countries where they made it to in the first century of the church. We know that Mark made it probably all the way to Norway. In fact, Norway's flag is the cross of St. Mark because they crucified Mark in an X instead of in a traditional cross that we know. Uh, Paul is understood to have made it to Rome. Some people think that, you know, perhaps he made it all the way through Spain completely and, you know, came back around. We know that Thomas made it to India. Have you ever walked anywhere? Like I had to do some physical labor outside and it was hard. Uh, Thomas made it to India from Jerusalem. That's amazing. And so we have a Christian faith that was carried out through history. It is a continuity. We're not disconnected in the 20th century, and we've just arrived on the scene. It was done by God, and he's still continuing to work today. As we saw last week, he will touch every single nation. All the families of the earth shall remember and return to the Lord, as our psalm said last week. And so this is a historical faith. It's not a faith which is an intellectual set of doctrines, but rather it is doctrine plus reality with physical humans who God moved through. And that should give you great grace. If you've ever examined your life and you've seen yourself look like some of the disciples who are boasting and rivaling for the first place, and then you see what God does through these disciples in the book of Acts and the New Testament epistles, it should give you great hope that God's able to change even me. And so this is the historic foundation of the Christian faith. Paul, after saying these particular doctrines, even ties it into something deeper than that. Not only is the Christian faith connected to the apostles, but but also that the events, the core of the message that Christ died, was buried, and resurrected were done in accordance with the scriptures. Now, that phrase, which we say in the Nicene Creed, does not mean in accordance with the New Testament scriptures. At this time, the scriptures was the Old Testament. When Paul uses the phrase, the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. So what Paul is saying is that that Christ died as prophesied. Christ was resurrected as prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that Christ died and the Bible also agrees with it or that Christ died and then the New Testament writers wrote that he died. It means that he died and it was prophesied beforehand. This is vitally important if we're to recapture 
our understanding of the importance of the Old Testament scriptures, we must understand that those treasures are hidden. Now, I don't know if you've ever read the Old Testament, but on a cursory reading, unaided by the Holy Spirit, it is very difficult to see a prophecy of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is why reading through new eyes, a book by James Jordan, reading through new eyes, eyes opened by Christ, eyes aided by the Holy Spirit, is necessary for you to read the Old Testament. All of the Jews were masters of these scriptures that Paul is referencing, and yet they all rejected God in the flesh. Not all, but most of them, the majority. Of course, we understand that the apostles were Jewish and there was a great remnant, and Acts even says that many of the Pharisees believed, but the majority did not. And the reason why is that they were hard in their heart against God, and they were hard against his word. They did not profit by the reading. So, in understanding what Paul is saying, the Christian faith, the gospel which I've preached to you, is these core doctrines and historical events, but this wasn't God doing a new thing. It wasn't a revolution, but rather it was God's continual promise over and over again, starting with the proto-evangelism in Genesis 3.15, that the seed would bruise the serpent's head, or sorry, would crush the serpent's head and the serpent would bruise his heel. How did the serpent bruise his heel? The, re- the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so here we see this promise being unfolded, and it's, it's up to us now to incorporate the Old Testament, the scriptures, in our understanding as talking about Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. It means there's work to be done while we're reading. So, in the midst of this discussion of the resurrection, and, uh, and Paul outlines a few historic events, he connects it to how he joined up in the story, how Paul became an apostle. And in this, he gives a little brief illustration of a resurrected life. Of course, Paul has not been resurrected from the dead, but rather he's been resurrected from a spiritual death. Paul, we know, through the book of Acts and the rest of his testimony in his other epistles, was going down and finding people and killing them, arresting them. And these people weren't just criminals, they were Christians. So Paul is breaking the law of God because you're not allowed to murder. And not only is he breaking the law of God, he's warring against God himself, that is Jesus Christ and his mission in the earth through the apostles, and he's hunting down these people. This, he's a bounty hunter, literally. He's, if you've ever seen Star Wars, I've got to get one Star Wars reference in. Uh, we just had May the 4th, and it's a wonderful event. But I have to do this. Have you ever seen a bounty hunter? In Star Wars, they have bounty hunters, and these guys are paid to do whatever it takes to kill these people, who, whoever has the bounty on their head. They go and hunt down these you know, vile scum, these these traitors. And so this is what Paul is doing. He's using any means possible. He has letters from the Sanhedrin that give him authority to arrest and try and murder these believers. Paul then says he was converted. He was resurrected. His life was doomed to judgment on Christians, and now he becomes one of them. This is an amazing transformation. God changes him from a murderer of the church into an apostle. He says in verse 9, for I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called. Now, uh, if you were here on Friday night, my dad gave an exhortation to a right understanding of the old nature, the old man, 
now that you've come to faith and a, a right understanding of the new man, Paul here shows how this transformation takes place. In verse 9, he says, I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. Okay, that's low down here, unworthy. He's unworthy to be called an apostle, and then he moves on. He says, this is the past. Then he comes to the present. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. You don't have to feel bad about the way your life's going. If you are beginning to walk after Christ, you don't have to make excuses for the way that you've lived in the past. You're simply called to repentance and faith, to believe and obey. And so Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's God's grace that I used to be this way. And now that I used to be this way, I saw his light when Paul had the encounter with Jesus Christ, and now he has been transformed, and now Christ is precious and sweet to him. He says, the grace of God was not in vain. How was the grace of God proved to not be in vain? Because of what he became. You should be able to look back on your life and say, I used to be this vile, scummy person, and God is making me into something great, something new. First, you understand that you used to be unworthy. You were unworthy. That's why we sung a song today that said, it was for love that Jesus Christ gave up his blood. It wasn't because we were worth a lot. It wasn't because I, John Weiss, was somehow meritorious in my dealings in the earth and I was this wonderful superpower and that God really wanted me on his side. But rather, I was unworthy. Paul even says he was unworthy to be an apostle. And we know what great doctrines and revelations Paul had. Of course, those were given by grace. But we see here how he moves from unworthy to I am what I am. He's not making an excuse for what used to take place. He's fully admitting. And then at that point, he says, the grace of God, the, the salvation which God gave to me has been proved to be done, not in vain, not in, not in uh, name only, not without any substance, but rather it has been substantiated. It's been demonstrated as authentic by his work. He then says, by the grace of God, I worked harder than all of them. We just talked about how Mark made it to Norway. Paul probably made it to Spain. Thomas made it to India. The point isn't how far they got, it's how effective they were. Paul was given a unique call by God to establish New Testament churches within the first generation of, of Christianity, uh, mostly all done before the destruction of Jerusalem, so that God would be vindicated and that it would be demonstrated God had a continuity, that is, God had a plan for this, that he was able to truly keep his promise to real Israel, faithful Israel. And Paul was given this grace and he was able to work hard. I was doing something yesterday at my house, which currently looks very foolish because we haven't finished the project, I've decided to put raised beds in my backyard. And there's something you have to do when you build a raised bed. You can't just put it on the grass because the grass and the sod is too thick for the plants to get all the way down through. It, they'll be stunted in their growth. Their, their roots won't go down deep. So you have to remove the sod and you have to till up the ground. And if you've ever done that, let me just tell you, you have my sympathy. It is horrible. It's probably the hardest thing I've ever done. And I've dug posts and I've repaired fences and moved refrigerators and it's hard. It's very hard labor. And here, in the middle of doing that labor, the reason I'm telling you this is that I, multiple times while we were going through the day, my wife helped me, she's amazing, um, 
multiple times I was at the end of my limit. I was, I was spent. I was winded. And I had to take a break. And I would take a break for maybe 15 minutes and then go back at it for 30 minutes or maybe five. Or, and, <laughs> and, and then finally, near the end of the project, I could see the, the tape at the end of the race. I could see we're about to break through. We've got another half hour. We're going to be done. And then I felt this new wind, a, sur a second wind, the runners call it. I felt this surge of energy, and I was reminded of this because I had looked at the reading beforehand. I was reminded of this, is that what Paul's saying is, I worked harder than all the apostles, not because of something in me. This is how Paul explains how grace works. This is so important for us as Christians to understand that the grace of God, which allows us to work, is not our working. Philippians says that we are to tremble and fear before God, confirming our faith, because it is God who is at work in us. We're supposed to work because God's in us working. You come alongside and partner with God. Now, in no way am I saying that you partner with God's salvation. You do not cause, you do not earn the salvation which is given. Ephesians makes it plain that we are saved by grace, and that grace operates through faith. And the faith doesn't come from us, but rather it's a gift of God. And so this is a gift of God, but Paul is saying that as he's working, he understands that God is working. So grace means work hard, war against your sin, study, submit yourself to the teachings of Jesus Christ, but don't do it out of your own effort, but rather do it because God has promised to do it in you. And believing the promise, you're able to obey. And so Paul here is saying, I worked harder than any of them, He's not dismissing the reality, but then he's not drawing attention to himself. He's, under, he's rightly testifying, this grace did not come from me, but rather it came from God. Then he goes and he always turns, grace always moves away from itself and it directs to another. Verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. The point Paul is saying is that God has mightily done this through me, and if this has taken place through me, then he can turn around Corinth. Corinth, in a, in a very similar way, is like Paul. They're a church that is so full of mixture that it's doubtful. It, it scares Paul. Paul is writing out of concern. This is a letter that's filled with rebuke. They're tolerating sin in the church. They're tolerating false doctrines, false apostles. There are factions. There are groups of people who are saying, we're the right ones. Y'all are messed up. And it's, it, it's a war zone. And Paul is saying that this grace happened to me, and therefore he calls them to believe. At the, verse, at the end of verse 34, he says, wake up from your drunken stupor. He's telling that church, you guys are drunk. You guys are in this, you are walking around like zombies because you're focused on every other thing other than the gospel and other, and other than submitting yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is, is giving an example. He's giving a testimony. Here's what resurrection looks like. And the resurrection that Paul had, that Paul experienced, was because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That after Jesus' resurrection, after his ascension, by the Spirit, Jesus revealed himself to Paul, and Paul was then commissioned and transformed. And so we understand, Paul explains, that the grace of God does not determine, uh, uh, it determines your identity, not your past. He says, I am what I am. And then he moves on to boast in the Lord, not in the flesh, and then finally he directs to another. It's contrasted in this uh, passage to verse 2. He says, 
<clears throat> in verse 2, and by the gospel by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. And then he says that I did not believe in vain in verse 10. And so this true humility, which we see in Paul, it recognizes the grace of God and it, and it does not dismiss, it doesn't, it's not false humility, but then it directs to another. It shows God is glorious and it says, team, you preached, whether it was they or I, we, we all preached and you believed. Paul is getting away from himself, but he has to talk about it just enough so that people would have hope that they could be transformed as well. And that is in the midst of the resurrection. That may not seem vitally important to the resurrection, but the point that Paul is saying, the reason Paul goes through those words, is he's saying, this is a resurrection that I went through. So Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church in this letter. And in this chapter, he is rebuking a specific problem. The other chapters have their own concerns. This, this chapter is about a problem in the church where there were certain people saying that the resurrection of the dead was a spiritual reality only, which has already taken place, and that there's no future coming resurrection. You may, if you're a student of theology, you may understand this to be similar to today's concept of uh, full preterism. If that doesn't mean anything to you, congratulate yourself that you don't have to deal with that ridiculous heresy. The resurrection from the dead is still coming, and Paul is warring against false doctrine, which troubles these believers. Why does it trouble these believers? Because, as we're about to see, the great Christian hope was always the resurrection of the dead, not simply dying and going to heaven. And so these believers are being troubled by their fellow brothers, who are, and those fellow brothers who are, maybe aren't even brothers at all, are going around saying, the resurrection's already happened, we've already missed it, everything's done. And Paul is rebuking them. He says, how can you say this has taken place? And there are some still others who are probably part of the uh, former Sadducees, This one of the doctrines of the Sadducees that there's no resurrection from the dead. The Pharisees believed in the resurrections. The Sadducees did not. We know that from extra, extra biblical sources, that is, sources that weren't in the scriptures. But it's plain to see that this is a similar doctrine that they held. And so they believe there is no resurrection from the dead. It's all after you go into the grave, then it's just spirits with the Lord floating about in a misty Philadelphia cream cheese style heaven. You've got to, I've got to get that commercial. It's a great commercial because it's, it's all this cloud and harps. And of course we see those things in the book of Revelation, but it's, heaven is not this misty reality that, you know, you just float through and it's all ethereal. No, the great Christian hope is a physical resurrection, a redeemed creation that Jesus Christ dwelt in bodily to pay for and to bring about a transformation in. And so Paul is rebuking them because they're disturbing the faith of their fellow brothers. That would be like someone challenging the atonement or challenging the deity of Christ. It would be a major disruption. For us, we maybe don't feel the importance of this problem that somebody's going around and saying the resurrection isn't going to happen, but it is vital. It's a vital importance to understand that this is a major Christian doctrine. Paul condemns those who are saying that there is no future resurrection to their face without addressing one of their minor subpoints. I'm sure, though the 1 Corinthians 15 does not show it in this passage, that these people had justifications for their opinion. That is, they manufactured reasons which were, uh, you know, 
cursory to the scripture. Maybe they took some verses out of context and they said, well, see this here in this minor prophet and this here over in Leviticus. If we just look at those verses, it shows that there's no resurrection. But Paul doesn't even deal with any of their minor points. He just rebukes them and says, you are foolish. And this is what we understand to be summary judgment. If you're in a court of law and someone brings a lawsuit and the the judge has the option of considering the lawsuit and he first has to agree. And when he dismisses the case or just judges in one side or the other, it's to be understood as summary judgment. Why? Because the judge doesn't even hear the arguments. He just says, based on the evidence I see before me, there's no reason to have a trial. This person wins. This is what Paul's doing here. He's saying it's not even to be considered. It's not even to be wrestled with. It's just wrong at its face value. There are many things in the Christian life which are worthy of doing that. And the the things that are worthy of doing that are plainly the creeds. The creeds give us a quick summary of things that can never be challenged, that those who do challenge these things are moving away from the faith. They may be in the faith or they may look like they're in the faith, but they're quickly headed out, such as the, those who challenge the deity of Christ. If anyone ever comes to you, Mormons, LDS, uh, or Jehovah's Witness, they show up at your door and they want to tell you about how they understand things the right way and how they're, you know, rightly understanding Jesus wasn't, you know, you can be like Jesus and you can, you know, become this uh, amazing, that's what the Mormons actually teach. You can become Jehovah on another planet after you die. It's weird stuff, but the way that they get there is by challenging the core doctrines. And I want to encourage you, do not give any quarter to those who, don't give any space, allow this example of Paul's summary judgment to allow the gavel of logic and the scriptures to come down on those who would challenge core doctrines of the faith. And one of those core doctrines is the resurrection. So that's what Paul is doing. Paul is going to war for the importance of the resurrection. These Corinthians don't rightly understand it. They're allowing other people to disturb people in their church, and they should have been shutting them up. And so Paul here doesn't even deal with their minor points, their minor differences in their understanding, but just gives them a condemnation, a summary judgment, and begins to use logic to show that their understanding of this thing is is very warped. It's very twisted. The reason that Paul is doing this is because of the understanding that he has of the believer's union with Christ. He says, I understand that Christ went through a resurrection as the first fruits for all believers. Therefore, we don't even need to address this. We don't even need to address this heresy that says there is no resurrection from the dead. Paul then begins to show us the doctrine of the union with Christ, how it applies to a specific event, which will come about at the end of the age, the resurrection. Paul says that because we are united to Christ, whatever has happened to him will happen to us. We saw earlier, we talked about briefly, Jesus in Revelation 2 or 3 says that those who overcome, I will grant to sit down on my throne. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we are seated even now with Christ in heavenly places. Paul says that as many who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This, this We've been united to Christ in his death. And Paul says, because you've been united to Christ in his death, you therefore will be united to Christ in his resurrection. And that's not talking about dying and going to heaven. It's talking about being resurrected in a glorified body, as Paul says in the rest of 1 Corinthians 15. 
Verse 12, now if Christ has been proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? See the link logically that Paul uses between these two ideas? If Christ has been raised, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection? Christ's resurrection was just the first drop in a rainstorm that's coming, so to speak, metaphorically speaking. Paul is saying that because Christ was resurrected, it guarantees a future resurrection from the dead. That's what Paul is saying. It's, it's the logic of necessity, right? It necessarily must follow. If, if you use the logic of necessity, you say, if A, therefore B and C, then the logic of necessity says, A happened, therefore B and C will happen, right? This is the logic of necessity. And Paul basically says that because Christ was raised, it means there's a future resurrection. And he goes the opposite way. He says, if there is no future resurrection, then Christ hasn't been raised. They're inescapably linked. They're, they're connected, logically speaking, and they can't be divorced from each other. If, Paul, if uh, Paul is saying, if Christ has been raised, then all will be raised. And if there won't be a resurrection, then Christ hasn't been raised. You can't have one side of the coin without the other. Paul explains this, how this relates to human beings in verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The reason why it's so important that there is a resurrection from the dead is because the whole redemptive plan that God has been doing, that God has been rotting on the earth, has been working on the earth, was to undo the death and sin which came in through the fall. And if there is no resurrection from the dead, if we just become dirt after we're dead and ne there's never a resurrection, then what that ultimately means is that sin won. And that should feel important to you. The, the danger is that we have so spiritualized Christianity, we've so accepted the way of thinking of the Gnostics that the physical world is bad and the spiritual stuff is good, that's the doctrine of Oprah. That's the doctrine of Eastern mysticism. They, you got to get in touch with your spirituality, get in touch with your feminine side. Uh, that's okay if you're feminine. <laughs> it's not okay if you're man. Um, and and these, these people promote this kind of uh, detached spirituality, this waftiness, uh, ethereal religious stuff. And that is poison to Christianity. It's contrary to the whole point of why Christ took on flesh. He became like one of us in the incarnation. We celebrate that in Advent and Christmas, that Jesus Christ came as one of us. He was born in the likeness of sinful flesh, Hebrew says. So, we understand rightly that the resurrection proves that Jesus Christ triumphed over death. It's not just Christ's initial resurrection from the dead. It does prove that he was vindicated by God. Jesus Christ went around preaching a gospel. He was judged for claiming to be equal with God. He was condemned and executed. And God vindicated what Jesus Christ was saying by raising him from the dead. And what God is doing through this coming resurrection, Paul is saying, is he is vindicating your faith. And if there is no resurrection from the dead, then your faith is in vain. It's pointless without understanding that there is a coming bodily resurrection in which God will unite all things, heaven and earth, in the one man, Jesus Christ, and the kingdom will be fully realized, without understanding that's where this is going, with a physical body, bodily resurrection, then your faith is pointless. 
you should just be like everybody else. He says, you should become like those who say, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There's no tomorrow. Live like there's no tomorrow, Paul is saying, if that's the case. Of course, it's not the case. He says in verse 18, if this is the case that there's no resurrection from the dead, verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. The reason he says this is because his understanding of what human existence is, it's a bodily experience. Spirit, soul, and body united in a person, and it's not just this spiritual ethereal existence out in nebulous worlds, whether they be full of glory or not. It's a bodily resurrection. And so Paul is saying this doctrine is important, and he's emphasizing that this doctrine is the proof not only that Christ has been vindicated, but that those who trust in Christ will be vindicated by God and that all the world will be judged, all the world will understand rightly that Christ is Lord, and these, you and I, these who have believed in in him at first will be demonstrated as righteous by faith. Paul says if there's no resurrection, then all who are in the graves will stay in the graves. Ultimately, if there's no resurrection, sin and death has never been defeated. And death came through sin, and if death remains, then sin still remains. But Jesus Christ paid for sin and defeated death. If there is no resurrection, then that means sin and death has won. For almost all of the, uh, the history of the church, the resurrection has been emphasized as the great Christian hope. You may have heard the phrase, if you've been in some older churches, you may have heard the phrase, the blessed hope of, Christ- of the faith. The blessed hope is not just that we will go die and go to heaven in the sweet by and by, and we'll have our place next to the angels, although we will be there. Paul does say that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We do, of course, teach and rightly believe that those who are have died in faith do not experience some sort of temporal safety sleep, kind of, you know, just sitting in your coffin, but rather you are with the Lord. But that's not where you'll be forever. There will be a resurrection from the dead, and there will be a vindication of the righteous. This has always been the emphasis of the Christian hope, but due to some elements of focusing on a truncated gospel that only affects the eternal destiny, or that is, the spiritual state of a person's life, we have overemphasized certain aspects of the faith that emphasize, you know, if you died tonight, where would you go? You've, you've probably heard that phrase and I, I normally think, well, if I died tonight, I would probably first go to the hospital, and then someone would take me. I, I kid for, for one reason, because most of our preaching has only attempted to affect the heart. And we've so truncated Christianity to only be about religious things and not understand that physical and spiritual are united in God's creation. There's, there's no divorcing one from the other. Um. That being said, we, we've emphasized to the point of neglect of this doctrine. And it's my opinion that this has become for us in our cultural context a functional rejection, not an actual re- rejection. You would never be able to get someone to say, well, I don't believe in the resurrection. Well, you could, of course. But those who are Bible-believing Christians would probably never admit that they don't focus on or don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. But it becomes a functional neglect. Just like you can not bow down at a, at a statue of Baal, but you can have a functional idol, right? A, an idol of the heart. This is what our overemphasis of the spiritual state after death 
and an underemphasis to the point of severe neglect of the doctrine of the resurrection has become. And so it's vital that we reclaim it. This rebuke that Paul gives to the Corinthian church is just as important as ever. It's vital that we understand these things. So, verse 20, uh, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. Paul says that the resurrection proves that Jesus Christ was the true man, capital T, capital M, the true man, whereas Adam was a, the first Adam, he was weak and, and fell, but rather Christ has been demonstrated as righteous. And not only that, sin which entered through Adam has now been undone by Christ. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Daniel 12 says rightly that those, some will raise to everlasting glory and some will be raised to everlasting contempt. You must harmonize this passage with the rest of scripture. Paul is not saying that all will be raised from the dead and all will be saved, but rather there will be a great judgment, some to everlasting glory, some to everlasting contempt. So when you understand that Paul is saying through, through Adam, sin and death came into the world, therefore also through Christ, resurrection will come to the world, he is not saying that everyone will be declared righteous at the end of the age. And if you did believe that, you would contradict the rest of the scriptures. So, understand that clearly. When he says verse 22, he is not talking about a resurrection unto glory for all, but rather a resurrection for all. Now, that's a pretty heavy idea, but we're going to look at the final element of today's passage, and then we'll close. Many people in today's culture, we both, we both emphasize uh, equality. This was the great hope of the Enlightenment. If you've ever read any of the Enlightenment thinkers, that all men are created equal, and we believe that. That's the beginning of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. It's evident within our being. It's evident within our experience that all men and women, they're not saying all men, they're saying all men and women, all humankind is created equal. That's true. But equal doesn't mean there can't be authority and submission. So much of our culture says authority is wrong and submission creates an inequality, but that's not true at all, scripturally speaking. Paul says that not only are these things not passing away, authority and submission are not getting archaic, they're not being uh, outdated, outmoded concepts that aren't welcome in modern society. He not only says that that's not happening, but also that it's going to get better, that we're going to have more authority and submission. In fact, today and in years past has been the least amount of authority and submission that has taken place on the earth because men have been in rebellion against God. But as the gospel triumphs throughout time and history, more and more are bowing the knee to Jesus Christ. So Paul says that this is where we're going. It's going to be a glorious and fulfilling end, and then he explains what he means. Christ is even now reigning heaven on the behalf of the church. Christ, which we are about to celebrate next week in the ascension, goes into the heavens. He's raised up, and he then, as the book of Revelation says, he goes and takes the scroll and sits down on the throne of the universe which he rules from on God's behalf for a specific reason, one that we just talked about a little bit with this, the understanding of the sin and death which came through Adam. And so God has a specific plan by which he is ruling the world through his son Jesus Christ, a man, 
both God and man, on the throne of heaven. And Paul is saying that all are going to be submitted to Christ, and then Christ will be submitted to the Father. Now, I want you to plainly understand Paul's not saying at all that Christ is not right now submitted to the Father, as if he's off doing his own thing. That's not what Paul means when it says that Christ will be submitted to the Father. He's saying that Christ will not have to fulfill his role or function. We know rightly that's the case because Christ says in the Gospels that he only does what he sees his Father doing. He's not doing his own will. He does the will of the one who sent him. And Christ also said that he and the Father are one. So we know that subjection does not create inequality. You can have equality and you can have subjection and authority. And the Godhead, we understand rightly that the Father, the Son, the Spirit, as the Athanasian Creed tells us, are co-equal, co-eternal. There is no subjection in the Trinity that is that creates some sort of inequality. It's an equal identity, an equal existence, but there is subjection in role, function, in role and function. And so here Christ is, Paul is saying that Christ will be subjected to the Father. Why will Christ be subjected? Because he won't have to fulfill a role that he's currently doing right now. The reason is that the roles which Christ fills now, fulfills now, will be finished. Christ is currently what? Submitting all his enemies under his feet. And he doesn't have to do that when all the enemies are gone, right? He's preparing the kingdom. He, it says that Christ will turn the kingdom over to the Father. We understand that the eternal covenant of redemption includes such concepts as the Father loving the Son, therefore he wished to give the Son a pure and spotless bride. We understand that the Son loves the Father, therefore he wishes to bring many sons into glory. The Father and the Son also love the Spirit, therefore they have created a living temple of image bearers who would be the temple for the Holy Spirit, as 1 Peter 2 tells us. And so there is this gifting. The nature of the Trinity is a grace gifting. It's a, it's a loving exchange. And so within our understanding of what Jesus Christ is doing right now is he's preparing a kingdom because he loves his Father. He's going to give the kingdom over to the Father as a gift that he is prepared for. And the reason why is because God will be demonstrated as more glorious as working through one man sitting on a throne than if he had squelched the rebellion that Satan started immediately. The scriptures here and there tell us that sometime after the creation of Lucifer, the, the angel of light, he was then deceived that deception is a mysterious thing. We don't understand fully how this happened, but sometime Lucifer is deceived and rebels against God. He makes war with the angels, and there's this great war in heaven, which we see in both Daniel and Revelation. And at some point, Lucifer is kicked out of the heavens, and then he starts to mess with the earth. And then Christ says in Luke uh, either 10 or 11, he says, I behold Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And what he means by that is not the highest heaven, but rather the spiritual powers over the earth. Likewise, Paul says that we do not war against flesh and blood. We, we don't have an earthly war, but we war against spiritual powers in where? Heavenly places. And so there's this great battle that God is doing, and we've begun to participate in it because of the gospel. And God has desired not to squelch the rebellion against Satan immediately. He could have done that don't have any mistake in your understanding of who God is and who Satan is. God could have squelched the rebellion instantly, but rather God saw it more glorious that through one of his image bearers, he would triumph over the devil, and that through 
that image bearer sending a message of grace to other image bearers that we would become victorious over and over again against the enemy. That's an awesome story. And uh, it's the best story ever, ever written. But what it says is that at the end of this, there won't be any more squelching to do. Jesus Christ will have put all the enemies under his feet. And so there's no more reason that he will have to reign on the throne in that manner. Adam was deceived in the garden. Satan's rebellion spread to the earth. And God saw fit to revenge his righteousness against Satan, that one of the ones who Satan had deceived would topple him. And by that, I do not imply in any way that Satan deceived Christ. I'm just saying that Christ, when he took on his physical nature as a man, that he entered into the the likeness of those who had been deceived so as to become one of them so as his victory would have application to them. He was made like unto his brothers in all things that he would be a high priest. And so God has toppled over Satan through the work of Jesus Christ, and that is what the resurrection testifies, that not only has sin and death been finally defeated uh, in the cross, but that final defeat is moving through time And it's eventually at the end of all things will be fully realized. The kingdom will be given. God saw it fitting that this one man would bring a victory and that victory would spread throughout the whole earth and then it would touch all families. And then at that point, the end will come. The reason Christ will hand over the kingdom to the father is because the war will be over. And if you've ever felt the pull of sin in your heart after having trust Christ, and I I'm sure that if you trust Christ now, you have, you will be wonderfully happy that to hear this idea that at the end of the age, at the resurrection, the war will be over. That's a glorious reality. And that is the great Christian hope. Not that we will go and, you know, die. if we die, we go to heaven or hell. That, that's not the focus. The focus is a redeemed creation that God has established and and. Uh, accomplished through his son, Jesus Christ. That's where this is all going. That's what Easter tells us about. And as we move into these new, uh, these two next celebrations, both the Ascension and Pentecost, those are connected to this idea. The reason we celebrate Christ ascending is because he's going up to sit on the throne. The reason we celebrate Pentecost is because it's God empowering us for us to join into this fight. That's what we're celebrating in Easter. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we ask that you would open our eyes to the importance of seeing your son's work, not only done for you, not only done on behalf of you, not only done in your will, but also being done on our behalf. We would ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand that we will be raised from the dead, that that is the great Christian hope, that we will not have to Uh, have some sort of secondary, weaker experience without a body, but rather that you have desired to redeem even the physical realm. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to the magnitude of your gospel, that we would see that it touches every area and it has claim on all aspects of life. We ask you, Lord, also to deliver us from any remaining deception in our ways of thinking that, that you are not concerned with redeeming the world. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.